uh, you know, I just wanted to do something on my own. I mean, I, I, it, it was great at Saatchi's because you could do anything there. You had total freedom um, as long as you didn't get any public credit for it. And, <laughs> uh, and I, you know, I think, you know, I thought about what my dad had said and uh, he was still alive at that time and I thought it would just be good to have a go. I'd, I'd made uh, a little bit of money and I borrowed 250,000 pounds. Sir Martin Sorrell is arguably the most important advertising executive in the world. As CEO of WPP Group, he oversees a global marketing machine that he's assembled over more than 30 years. His group companies include J. Walter Thompson and Ogilvy and Mather, Young and Rubicam, and more than 100 others. Clients include two of every three global Fortune 500 companies. This is Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. It's a weekly podcast bringing you the highest achievers from business, entertainment, philanthropy, and sport. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or Google Play. And once you've done that, tell a friend. These talks are definitely conversation starters. When I sat down with Sorrel for the Fort Knox podcast, I wanted to talk about his childhood, his career, and the pivotal choices he made. He didn't disappoint. Here's Sir Martin Sorrell. Sir Martin, I, I think it's just phenomenal. It is that phenomenal. You're dead you right, John. Have built <laughs> this company, I, and I haven't built it on my own. There's a couple well, no. hundred thousand other people have been there. But, but wire and plastic products, right? Is is what the show of it was called? Nineteen eighty-five, right. right? It's been more than thirty years, and you did it what at age forty. I started when I was age 40, so I'm now 72, yes. Yeah. Male menopause, as they call it, and, <laughs> and repause. Now, not technical a lot of people district. build something this big, granted not all by yourself, but right. even with help, uh, at that point. What, what, well, I don't what know, it'd be interesting. I don't know. I haven't gone back and looked at uh, how many people sort of uh, got, the, got the call um, at around that age. I mean, 40 is a, in those days, uh, used to be a pretty good, critical age because you think of yourself starting work when you're about 20, mm. you come out of college and finishing when you're 60. Now, of course, here I am at 72, still going. <coughs> and you know, what Warren, I'm not. I'm comparing myself to Warren Buffett, but he's what 86, and Jorge Lehman is what 75, 76, and, and he still does. Charlie Munger, I think, yeah. is even older than the Warren. So, so. Um, but, I, you know, in those days, 40 years old, I think probably it's a little bit later now, maybe 45 is the critical age. And I mean, Jeremy Bullmore, who still, I think, is the best writer uh, in the advertising industry, who used to be the chairman of J. Walter Thompson in London, uh, sort of said to me that, you know, you should put a little flag on everybody's PC uh, three months from their 40th birthday because that's when they're thinking about what they're going to do for the next 20 years as opposed to the first 20. And that's what, it, what happened to me. I sort of look back. Look forward, and my dad had always said, you know, build a, a reputation in a, a well, find a company that you enjoy, in an industry you enjoy, build a reputation with it, and if you fancy doing something on your own, go off and do it. But but don't flit from flower to flower, which of course is the conventional wisdom now is that you're better off looking at all sort of going from company to company and building experience that way. So you've said that you've never had. A closer friend or confidant than your father, yeah, and unlikely to have. Yes. What made the relationship so special? Um, well, I guess I was an only child. I, I did it, technically. I had, well, I had an older brother, Michael, who 
died at birth uh, was, I think, uh, what they called then a dry birth. So that was in 1944 when the war was still going on. I was sort of born uh, in 1945, February the 14th, 1945. Uh, so I think, you know, I came from a, a, a Jewish family in northwest London, in what I call the ghetto of northwest London. <laughs> and uh, I was a spoilt uh, only child, uh, only. Um, uh, Jewish kids, boys or girls, know what it is to have a possessive Jewish mother. I had a mother who wrapped everything in plastic, and it was amazing I didn't end up in a plastic bag in the fridge. Um, so very different from how your father grew up. Uh, yes. But, uh, well, I mean, to, to this day, I don't know. I mean, I knew my Zayda and my Bubba, as, uh, as uh, we used to call them. Uh, my, my grandmother on my father's side was a, a very strong-willed woman, <clears throat> who died of breast cancer because in those days Orthodox Jewish women would never go to a doctor mm. to be examined. Uh, maybe that's still the case, I think. Um, but I was, you know, I was, as I say, I was an only only child of, uh, uh, or probably even worse, I, you know, I had a brother who died and therefore I was the last chance saloon. Uh, and so I probably had a very close relationship uh, with my father and my mother. My mother was very possessive and... Uh, you know, to her dying day, uh, she used to work in a charity, and she died when she was uh, almost 90. We buried her on her 90th birthday. Mm. But she worked uh, in a Jewish charity, and I think board. She was in the reception center of the largest Jewish day care center in Europe. So she used to do the reception of all these old people who would come in for their daily um, fix. Yeah. Um, no, not fixed literally, but um, metaphorically. Right. And she would bore them rigid with uh, stories about uh, her son, her one and only, and her grandchildren, even worse. <laughs> <laughs> so y your father and mother were close to you, took close care of you, um, and you went to Cambridge. Uh, yes, I, w I went to Cambridge. I mean, my father was... Um, very keen on me having a good education because he didn't, he, as I said, he had to leave school when he was 13. He got a violin scholarship to the Royal School of Music, which he couldn't take up because he, as I say, had to become an income-producing unit. My mother mm. uh, met him at school. They were child, childhood sweethearts at, at, at secondary school. Uh, so my dad was very keen for me to have a, a, a good education, and I went to a what was called an indirect grant grammar school uh, in the UK, which was called Haberdashers, which was the best of the state system and the best of the private system. My father paid, I was a fee-paying student, well, he paid for my fees. It was £30 per term, um, and there were three terms of the year, so I, the, the education cost him £90 a year, which in those days, it was a day school, uh, was a lot. And that gave me a good chance of getting into Cambridge, which I did do, uh, to study economics, to wrestle with economics, <laughs> literally, um, at Christ College, Cambridge, and I went there. So when you went to Saatchi, yeah. eventually, uh, as CFO, yes. was it more about the economics part, or was it more about the... Oh, it was serendipity, none of the above, because in between, uh, I went from Cambridge straight to Harvard Business School, which my mother thought was the worst thing that I could have ever done. Why? She, well, she thought it made me into somebody who was just totally focused on business and okay. forgetting about everything else. And that was a bad thing. Well, in her mind it was, because it probably made me uh, too focused on that uh, and not as balanced as uh, some people would say, I'm still unbalanced, uh, <laughs> as balanced as I should be. 
What does she want to balance it out with? You know, music or culture? No, or? she well, um, family. I think because oh, okay. you know that would be, that would that you know, uh, Friday night. My father was always home on a Friday night. Uh, he used to work on Saturday actually. I mean, he used to travel across London uh, because the offices of the company that he ran uh, was in Upper Richmond Road, which was on the south side of the Thames. Uh, so it meant going from northwest London really to southeast London. And uh, it was a long way to go. It used to take him about an hour and a half each way. So he always went early in the morning, dropped me off at school, uh, and then uh, came back uh, late in the evening and worked Saturdays, um, pretty much a full day on Saturdays. Mm. And on Sundays, he would uh, receive the regional sales statistics, which was just a UK company, uh, for, um, for, for all of the stores. But uh, no, I had a very close relationship with him, and I used to speak to him talk to him about uh, about what I was doing and what I was not doing. And he died in 89, uh, just just after we had acquired Ogilvy. Mm. Uh, so he knew about, uh, J. Walter Thompson knew about Ogilvy. And uh, even at the height, of, those were two what were called called hostile takeover bids. <laughs> yeah, they, they were hostile in many senses of the word. Well, no, they're only hostile to one person, that's the CEO <laughs> of the company that you were going after. I mean, Jimmy Goldsmith uh, said... Uh, many years before, uh, that there's no such thing as a hostile takeover. And in our case, it wasn't hostile to the shareholders because, you know, it, 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 it did make their lives easier. Uh, it wasn't hostile to the clients because we wanted to keep them. And it wasn't hostile to the people, uh, the good people in particular, who you wanted to keep. So mm. it was only hostile to the person who was uh, running the company. And in both cases, I think we could argue the company wasn't being as run as well as, as, well as it should be. Anyway, my, my father in 87... Uh, and in 18, up to 89, and he was dying of cancer uh, in 89. He died uh, on July the 1st, 89, and we really cemented the uh, Ogilvy acquisition in sort of about, I think it was May or June. In fact, I remember reading, it was a cover story in the New York Times uh, supplement, color supplement. I remember reading to him when I was trying to get back from Detroit. I was in New York, it was on a Friday, and uh, I had to go to Detroit that afternoon to see somebody who was retiring from Ford Motor Company. Hmm. And I remember reading him the, this cover story in the New York Times because he was in the hospital. And, uh, you know, he used to be an avid listener for anything in relation to his, uh, his only son. And I remember I got halfway through the article and he said to me, gosh, this is a long article. So clearly I knew he was uh, in some pain. Hmm. And I flew to Detroit that afternoon and... A little bird said to me, um, you know, sort of intuition that I had to get back to London. So I flew overnight from Detroit to London, got to the hospital at about nine o'clock in the morning, and he died that evening at six o'clock. Wow. So uh, I was glad that I managed to get there. Um, but it was quite, uh, you know, the doctor said to me, actually, uh, the doctor said to me, you know, you can wait a week. It's not, he'll, he'll survive for another week. But I just felt I had to get back, and I'm glad I did because I was there when he died. And your your mother, you were saying, was sensitive to these family connections, thought you were too focused on business when yes. you went to Harvard Business School. Yes, and I came out of that. And and when my first job was with Glendenning Associates, uh -huh. which was a marketing consultancy firm, a very good one, actually, in Westport, Connecticut. Uh, and then, you know, again, as my mother intervened, because in those days, little-known fact, you could be drafted, even if you were a foreigner. In fact, Howard Stringer, Sir Howard Stringer, uh, 
Um, was drafted. He was a Welshman who stayed in the U.S. at that time, height of the Vietnamese draft, and he was drafted. My mother said, I, uh, I was allowed nine months for every year of education, so I had 18 months. Uh, and after the first six months, and I was up in Westport, Connecticut, I mm. uh, couldn't drive. I was sort of stuck in there because I couldn't drive a car <laughs> um, because I, I didn't know how to. Um, which Americans found absolutely extraordinary that you know you didn't have completely to ordinary in New York. Yeah. Not, not, <laughs> not that, well, maybe these days, but not then. <laughs> okay. And you know, I was completely marooned, really. Anyway, my mother said, "Look, you're not going to stay in America. You've got to come back from America because I don't want you drafted." Uh, so I came back, and and I picked up with Mark McCormack, who I met at uh, Harvard Business School as a subject of one of the cases case, case studies. It was called Management of New Enterprise. It was on entrepreneurs. Mm. Anyway, I met Mark at uh, B-School at the time of that uh, case study, mm -hmm. and he said, keep in touch. And so when I decided to come back to the UK, I sort of uh, was dragged back by my mother from the, to the UK. I, I called him up and said, look, uh, anything. And he, he got me to start uh, his office uh, in the UK. He, he, he had offered the same job to two other people, and I turn up and find that there are three people who have my job. <laughs> <laughs> so all three accepted. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, they were all... We were all ended up competing against one another in some way, shape, or form. And I, I spent a few years with him. Tried did the to... other two spend a few years as well? Or... Yeah, they did, actually. Okay. They did. Um, we were all under... Uh, we were all delusional. Um, <laughs> and then um, after a few years, I, want, I always wanted to do something with my dad. <laughs> and um, one of the regrets of my life, if not the biggest regret, actually, was that we, uh, we never did anything together. We tried... And it was absolutely impossible. I mean, despite the fact that I had this very close relationship with him and loved him dearly, and I, I think he did, he loved me too, despite that, we just couldn't get anything going. It was just... Business it was oil and Yeah, oil and water. It was amazing. We well, just, is that surprising? They say you shouldn't do business with close family members. Um, well, it wasn't doing business. You know, we wanted to start something. We did invest in something together, actually, which turned out to be okay. And... Um, Anyway, it just didn't work out for whatever reason. You know, he he wanted it his way, I wanted it my way, and there was a, I don't know, clash of wills or whatever. So I I uh, had met uh, a man called James Gulliver, uh, or other through a headhunter I'd met him, and I became his personal gopher. Um, I was described as a sort of personal financial advisor. That was a very grand <laughs> description, and what I was was his bag carrier. And uh, James had invested in um, an advertising agency, uh, which was called Compton Partners, which had been injected, is a complicated story, into a shell company, rather like Warren Plastic Products, okay. called the Birmingham Crematorium. It was an old crematorium <laughs> company. They injected Compton <laughs> Partners in, and Compton Partners acquired Saatchi and Saatchi. Uh. James Gulliver had a shareholding in Compton Partners. Uh, and interestingly, he sold down his stock position because when they acquired Sarge's, it diluted the assets per share. James, being a retailer, Gulliver believed that assets per share were important rather than earnings per share. The earnings per share, the accretion was enormous. Hmm. The price earnings multiple fell sharply as a result of the deal, making it a very attractive investment. But James couldn't get his head around this. So we sold out all his position, but we maintained an advisory relationship with the Saatchi brothers, and that's how I got into advertising. It was serendipity, a very long story, but very, very chancy. So why did you want to leave that? 
Well, because, you know, again, it was menopausal, wasn't it, or andropausal. <laughs> uh, you know, I just wanted to do something on my own. I mean, I, I, it, it was great at Saatchi's because you could do anything there. You had total freedom um, as long as you didn't get any public credit for it. And, uh, and I, you know, I think, you know, I thought about what my dad had said and uh, he was still alive at that time and I thought it would just be good to have a go. I'd, I'd made... Uh, a little bit of money, and I borrowed £250,000, and together with a stockbroker, we looked for a shell company, what the French call a cocky, and we found, we had some criteria, it had to be about a million pounds of value, quoted on the London Stock Exchange, uh, freehold property, no borrowings, a business that was, uh, uh, was, was stable, but but we could understand a manufacturing business because they were cheaply valued. Not a crematorium. Not a crematorium. Well, if we, if we had found a crematorium, um, you know, uh, yes, it would have been fine. <laughs> uh, and we said that we had one criterion was management um, um, mature but not senile. So, <laughs> so uh, management that could run the manufacturing business if it was a manufacturing business. Whilst we went out and built, uh, my partner and I at, at that time went out and built a services business and that was it so we 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 went down to uh, uh, Dartford which is where wire and plastic products headquarter was uh, we were starving uh, as we went down the um, uh, Gordon Sampson who ran the company uh, didn't invite us to lunch or anything at Dart Dartford he said come round to the wire works because um, they made wire baskets and <laughs> pots and pans uh, come round to the wire works at about I don't know, 2, 2.30 in the afternoon, which was just after lunch. It was a clear signal he wasn't going to have lunch with us. <laughs> and we were in Dartford High Street, uh, this guy Preston Rob and myself, and we were starving, and we saw this fish and chip shop. So we bought ourselves uh, a bag of chips, uh, liberally sprinkled with salt and vinegar, and turned up with the wire wireworks smelling of vinegar. <laughs> and Gordon Samson believes, believed to his dying day that we did that because we wanted to appear as though we were men of the people <laughs> from the fish and chip shop. Uh, anyway, you were just hungry because he had Yeah, yeah we left, were. Right? We were bloody hungry and the chips were very good, actually. Um, anyway, that's, uh, that, that's we met him. Um, and it was a very, actually, it was quite an interesting... This is an interesting story. So the advisors to wire and plastic products were two companies. One was called County Bank, which was the investment bank of NatWest Bank, and the other was a brokerage house called Pamir's Gordon, Pamir Gordon, which was what I call a poor man's Casanova. Casanova being, which is now part of J.P. Morgan, right. um, being a very posh brokerage. And Pamir's was posh. In fact, David Cameron's father was mm. the senior partner of Pamir Gordon. Anyway, um, they were the advisors. And um, Gordon Sampson, when we pitched up and made our pitch, about why we, we wanted to have a shell which we could use as a base, a quoted base to, to, to acquire businesses. Gordon Sampson consulted his advisors and uh, he, he rang up Pamela Gordon and he said, do you know this bloke Sorrell? Because I was CFO at, at uh, Sarge at the time and Pamela gave me a very nice reference, but they were not advising Sarge's. County Bank, on the other hand, were advising Sarge's mm. as well as their investment, one of their investment banking advisors. And so Gordon calls the, the, the partner at, uh, or the director, managing director at uh, County Bank and says, you know, what do you think of this Blake Sorrell? So, so uh, the, the director said, well, it's a difficult situation because he was in a conflict of interest. Uh, 
he said, let me think about it overnight and I'll come back to you. So the following morning, he calls Gordon and he says, well, let me tell you a story. There was a, a, a company called Hutchins, or there was a guy called Greg Hutchins and a company called Tompkins. And Greg Hutchins took a stake in Tompkins. And on the day that before he took the stake, the share price was 20. Mm -hmm. And the day after he took the, the stake, the share price was 60, right? And he said, I can't say anything else and put the phone <laughs> down. So he, in a very subtle way, gave Gordon the, the heads up that he thought this might be helpful <laughs> to Warren Plastic Brothers and, and Gordon went forward. Wow. So this issue of freehold property. Yes. That turned out... In the relation to JWT. Yeah. Well, actually, we had freehold properties in, in Warren Plastic Products, too. That's why I thought you were going with the question. But no, with, so in 87... What was, this, we, what was this thing that you had with freehold property? Well, in freehold property, uh, what, what happened in those days is on the balance sheet, if you had a freehold property, you had, according to the accounting rules, to depreciate it by over two, 40 years. So you, 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 you wrote it down mm -hmm. each year by 2.5%. So if you, if you held it for 20 years, it was half the cost. Right. But of course, freehold property was rising. In those days, inflation was greater, even as cases today. I mean, by and large, there are dips, but freehold property continues to hold its value, if not increase it. So if you so were to sell it. So, so if you had, you know, on your balance sheet, freehold property, you didn't revalue it. There was no rule that you had to revalue it. Some people would revalue it to signal to the market that the, there was a lot of residual value in there and the net asset value was higher than the book value. But by and large, people didn't do it. So uh, if we looked at the, the J. Walter Thompson balance sheet and you know, they'd been depreciating their, their freehold assets. We thought it was the London building, uh, the J. Walter Thompson building at 40 Barclay Square. And this was the first... Hostile takeover. Yeah, in '87, we'd done after. 18 acquisitions. We'd gone yeah. from a million pounds market cap to about 150 million in 18 months mm. uh, with 18 acquisitions. And we'd started our first. We'd done two or three in the U.S. We'd done all first 15 or so in the U.K. And then we started to do some stuff in the U.S. And you were hunting a whale here. Uh, well, yes. Yeah, so I mean, we we thought about J. Walter Thompson for a little bit, and JWT in the in the fourth quarter of 1986 started to lose money, which is, you know, that's the best quarter of the, the year. It's pretty difficult to do that. They'd lost some Ford business, some Burger King business, lost it to Ogilvy, actually, the mm -hmm. Ford business. And um, we just thought it was, it was an opportune time. Bert Manning, who was the number two to Don Johnson, who was then the CEO, Don Johnson had sort of unceremoniously fired. And uh, we thought it was an interesting opportunity. And... We, we, we bid, uh, well, ultimately, after two weeks, we went uh, from $45 at the first weekend to $50 at the end of the first week, and then we closed the deal at $55. I was uh, advised, or we were advised then by First Boston. Bruce Wasserstein was there. It was known in those days as Bid-em-up Bruce. <laughs> um, well, actually, he was intelligent. I mean, deals like that are... What, what the bidder is trying to find is the market clearing price. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit like, you know, so you're in a darkened room and you're, you're bumping around the room trying to find what the, the market clearing price is or the bank, the price at which the defending bank has to say to the defending uh, company or the board, you should negotiate. You're trying to find, you know, try and reach that figure at which 
they have to negotiate. Mm -hmm. And Bruce w was, as I said, known as Bit of Mutt Bruce, but Bruce was sound because, particularly with a service business where the assets are going up and down and lift all the time, it was important to get it done quickly if you were going to get it done. And so we moved quite quickly and got it together. Anyway, we 525, half debt, half equity. And we knew that on the balance sheet there was this free freehold asset. But it's like buried treasure. You don't know exactly yeah, and well, we got in what there. it is. We got in there. We, we, we went in and Robert Lowell, who was our finance director at that time, I said to Robert, have a look at the fixed asset register. So he went and looked at the fixed asset register and he called me and he said, well, I found the property, but it's not in London, it's in Tokyo. So he said, he said I'll... Tokyo was exciting in the mid-80s. Yes, very much so. This is right at the peak. And he said, uh, he said, well, I'll write to our Japanese... I said, no, no, don't do that. Because we, we had a, a, a banking syndicate. We had two Japanese banks in the bank, banking syndicate. I said, call the banks in Tokyo now. Tell them to walk around, have a look at the building, and tell us what they think it's worth. So about three or four hours later, we got a call back. We'd been around to the building. It was freehold. And they said they'd lend us $100 million against, against, the, against the property. So we knew then it was worth 200 because anybody who knows how banks operate, you know, they, want, they look for double cover. There was another very funny story. The following weekend, a guy called Peter Cohen, who's still around, who was at Shearson at that time, mm -hmm. called me. And I, to this day, I never know why he called me. I mean, I knew him from Harvard Business School, but I hadn't really been in touch with him. I was at home in, in Hampstead Garden suburb in London. And I can see it. I can see me. I was in my study and the phone rang and Peter said, I'm going to be in Tokyo next week. Is there anything I can do for you? So I said, well, I think there is, as a matter of fact. I said, you can go and look at this building. Right? And so a week later, I was again the same study in, in, in House of God and so the phone goes, it's Peter. He's back from Tokyo. And I remember this phrase, immortal phrase, U.S. investment banker. He said, I'll give you a quick hundred for it. <laughs> And I then knew it was worth 200 because <laughs> any investment banker worth his salt in America would, would you know, double up. Um, but we sold it for $207 million. We had to pay 50% capital gains tax because uh, you couldn't get out of it. Mm. So the 525 cost was re reduced to 425. Wow. And if the defending bank, the defending bank was Morgan Stanley, they never got sued, which I found quite extraordinary. Uh, it's no problem. Statute of limitation, I guess now, <laughs> and um, it was it was an amazing time. Because, so, so you had a lot of asset strippers, Hanson, Slater Walker, Jimmy Goldsmith, so-called asset strippers, strippers, who would buy companies at what looked uh, reasonable value, but was actually quite low value because they had these freehold assets on the balance sheet that people really hadn't gone into great detail to value. So we were just a beneficiary of that. The head of JWT had some pretty unkind things to say about you. No, that was Ogilvy. Oh, that was Ogilvy? The head of oh, JWT, okay. that John Johnson really had very little to say. <laughs> okay. he, 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 he retired uh, gracefully. Uh, it was the uh, it was David Ogilvy who called me an odious little oh. shit, actually, not jerk. Right, um, okay. Uh, because in those days, the Financial Times wouldn't publish four-letter words. Well, uh, but we knew that... We've come they, a long way since then, but... A little bit. Look at who's the, leading the free world. The, the, <laughs> the, uh, David Ogilvy, uh, we knew, was going to be very upset that somebody had uh, attempted to, to uh, take over his baby. But in the end, you know, we, we did a charm offensive. Um, that was also a very interesting story because 
in the bear hug letter, as we, as we it was in those days it was called a fax attack because we sent, <laughs> we sent the, uh, the letter in on Friday night when the Ogilvy board were up country in, in uh, New York State. And they, on that weekend, they were moving into Hell's Kitchen, into uh, Worldwide Plaza. Uh, so they were somewhat discombobulated at that particular time. But we sent the letter. But the last paragraph of the letter uh, said that we wanted David Ogilvy to be chairman of the combined company. Hmm. And we guessed that Ken Roman, who was the CEO of... Uh, of uh, Ogilvy, and we thought the relationship between Ken and David was not the, the best relationship. Uh, it was unlikely that Ken would show David that letter, uh, which proved to be the case. <laughs> and with all this invective that David came out with, which, you know, the OLJ or OLS uh, comment, uh, after he made the comment in the Financial Times after we launched the bid, on the Monday morning or whenever it was after the Friday afternoon, um, I, I, I said, uh, sent him a letter saying I'd, I'd like to meet him. Hmm. And he said, he said, fine. And when I met him, he said, um, uh, we, we talked, and I said, have you seen the letter? And he said, what letter? I described the offer letter. And I said, have you seen the last paragraph? And he said, what paragraph? What last paragraph? <laughs> And he hadn't been shown it. Uh. And uh, when I showed him the letter, you know how you showed him the letter, I mean, that last paragraph had been taken out. Oh. Which was quite extraordinary. So, so he had seen he had a seen version the, of the letter, letter without, without, without the last that last paragraph. paragraph, yeah. That was hard to do back then. It wasn't just... Well, I, however it was done, he was you certainly to, not like, aware of it. a copy machine and put a I don't know. I've got no idea, but he hadn't <laughs> seen it. So, which was... Which we, we thought we took a calculated guess that, uh, and even if he hadn't, if he had seen it, we, we thought he would have been very flattered by it. He became chairman. He was a great chairman. Um, did it matter to you that his tone and opinion changed? Yes, it did actually, because he did actually, he, he, he wrote an advert. We asked him to write a, a, a corporate ad after the deal was done, because, you know, there was a fair amount of invective and, and people made out of it. And, and the heading of the ad, I've got it in my study back in London, was my first public apology. <laughs> and he goes through this, uh, This he said, I've never met Martin, but when I did meet him, you know, kindred spirits. Uh, because actually David's history was, you know, he was, he was English. He was born actually in, uh, he always claimed to be Scottish, but he wasn't really. He was born, I think, in, in East Horsley, if I remember rightly, <laughs> uh, in England. And, um, you know, he had, he had gone to Gallup, sold Arga cookers, and started his agency when he was 40 years old. Mm. Started over when he was 40 years old. So there was, there was you know, a, a sort of Englishman or Scotsman uh, abroad on Madison Avenue. There was a thing. And anyway, it, it worked very well. And, uh, you know, his, his widow, Herta, uh, we still see not enough of, but we still see, and we still use Chateau Tufu, his pink chateau in Poitiers in the Belay of France. So David, you know, we turned him from being... Um, anti to pro. Um, and your relationship with that first bit of invective that he leveled at you... Well, we expected it. I mean, if somebody seizes your baby... And, you know, right. I mean, the fact, interestingly, he had sold every share that he owned in Ogilvy when it went public. Rothschilds took them public uh, in about 19... I'm going to say 1985. I think roughly when we started 
uh, Warren Plastic Products. Where did you get the thick skin? Um, well, it, I don't know about whether the thick skin or not, but um, you know, it goes back to school. And I mean, you know, if you're when you, it's an interesting question. I mean, I gets into sort of fairly tender stuff. I mean, when you when you're uh, from the northwest London ghetto in um, I use the ghetto loosely because it mm -hmm. wasn't really a ghetto uh, in uh, in London, Golders Green, Edgware, and Mill Hill. Or Mill Hill was upmarket. Um, you probably develop a pretty thick skin. I mean, people say things at at school. Um, school in the English sense, not the American sense. I'm not talking about university. I'm talking about high school. Right. Um, and in those days, um, there was a fair bit of uh, of uh, invective, and it's water off a duck's back. I mean, what I had to go through was nowhere near what my parents had to go through, or my grandparents had to go through. Um, you know, when my grandparents came from Russia on my father's side uh, in 1899, they couldn't even sign their names on their marriage certificate. There's, there are crosses on their certificate, and the four witnesses, um, who were also presumably from the Ukraine too, couldn't sign their names in English. So, um, you know, there was a lot of uh, anti-Semitism at that time. Um, and that, you know, I'm not saying that that's why you develop a thick skin or not, but you get exposed to uh, a fair amount of uh, nonsense when you're younger. Uh, and the, and, and anti-Semitism in Britain in those days was much more subtle hmm. um, than it was in many other places that I've come across. Um, and so you were exposed to it. But you still had the mindset, I'm here to do a job and I'm going to... Well, I don't know about here to do a job. I mean, in that particular case, to be fair, we knew that David re regarded school. Ogilvy... Oh, at school, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you develop a thick skin to it. You're gonna you're gonna perform. You're gonna focus on. What yes, you're there I mean, but, but you know, uh, you know, immigrants. Um, you know, you can make the same generalizations and maybe wrongly about immigrants now. I mean, um, immigrants. I, I, you know, my old school, um, uh, my high school, Haberdashers, um, has it's the catchment areas, northwest London, still a strong Jewish community, but. A lot of Indians, Pakistanis, uh, Commonwealth citizens, uh, migrant families, uh, where, whose, whose parents want their kids to be high achievers. Um, a bit of a pressure cooker, mm -hmm. but it breeds, breeds very similar attitudes. Now, your three oldest sons yeah. have done quite well, e even being removed another generation from that immigrant experience. Yeah. Went, to, went to Cambridge also. Yes, um, all three did, yeah. Went into finance, yeah. Goldman Sachs, right? Yes, and then all, yeah. and two then left, one, right? One's, one's at Molis and one's at uh, Man Group, yes. Uh, what do you attribute that to? I mean, my, surely my they fa had... My father, probably, because whilst I was, um, you know, jetting to and from New York, uh, my dad was instilling nothing to do with me. <laughs> so they spent a lot you know, of time. You know, brain skips a generation, so they've got their <laughs> grandfather's uh, abilities. Well, that's good for my sons then, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think they, you know, I, mean, I think uh, my first wife and I, uh, you know, did a reasonably good job. Um, did they ever express that they felt like they were in your shadow at all? 
no, I never wanted them to. Well, I think if I had, you know, I own two percent of WPP. If I'd own uh, fifty-one or uh, ninety-nine or a hundred, uh, it might have been different. Uh, but still, I still your name's sort of a brand. Well, I don't know whether they're overshadowed or not. I think they're bright enough to, or capable enough to make to plough their own furrows or. Uh, or, or row their own canoes. Um, no, I just, I didn't want them, I, it's like my dad, I mean, he didn't own his business, I didn't work in his, well, I did, I did get my first job, he gave me my first job in the credit department in uh, Halsden, <laughs> um, um, doing credit checking um, when I was about 16. Uh, but I didn't want that, you know, I, I thought they should plough their own furrow. I think that's important. I didn't think they should be dependent on me in any way, shape, or form for uh, uh, for any any help. They, you know, they'll do what they do. They, you know, they got to Cambridge and and Goldman and, and whatever else they've done uh, on their own on their own merits. But there was a and point at which that, they would say important. their last name, and people would say, "Oh." Well, I, I don't know. Well, then, well. My, you know, maybe maybe they should change their name, <laughs> or I should change my name back to oh, what my nice dad's that, name was. It's nice that they didn't trade wasn't on Sorrel. it if they didn't, but they had to deal with it, didn't they? Yeah, but I mean, I, I well, it depends on what you make of it. You can it can either be a good thing or it can be a liability. It can either be an asset or a liability. Um, but uh, no, maybe I should change back to because my because my name is my father's name was not Sorrel. I won't say what it was, but. He, met, he read a book in 1926. He was an avid reader, as I said, of the Shakespeare stuff and everything, uh, and the Talmud. And uh, he read a book by a man called Warwick Deeping called Sorrel and Son, which was actually made into a BBC series. Um, very good, about a manservant, you know, upstairs, downstairs, Downton Abbey type mm -hmm. butler, who, manservant, who uh, takes a lot of his money and puts it into the education of his uh, son. And uh, he loved the book so much, and there was a lot of anti-Semitism at that time, that he changed his name. He had a very sort of Russian, Jewish-sounding name, and changed his name uh, to Sorrel. But it was because he read the book Sorrel and loved the name. That's remarkable. That <laughs> it is he, remarkable. He embraced that storyline about investing. In well, the yes, I don't know. I think that was more. I mean, I think he did like the like the. Uh, the book and liked it because it was about a father-son relationship. Right. Um, so I think there. I think you're right. I think there was something more to it uh, than that. But of course, he did that before I was born, uh, and did it not because I mean he might have been attracted to the story because of that, and that's why he had a clo close relationship with his one and only son. Um, but you know, you're right. I mean, I think he probably was attracted to it for that reason. You said that you, earlier on, didn't have the best work-life balance. Uh, well, no, I, I mean, you, I remember that there was this um, uh, course, uh, it was taught by George Lodge, and George Lodge was the son of Henry Cabot Lodge, and it was a, a compulsory course in the first year of the, of the Harvard MBA. It was called PBE, Planning in the Business Environment. And um, what you, in order to get an A grade from George, all you had to do, in our view, was to write, uh, to do a diagram of three circles 
sort of intercepting one another rather like a Venn diagram. Mm -hmm. One circle uh, uh, meaning career, one circle meaning family, and one circle meaning society. And if you reproduce this diagram, you would get an A. I got an A minus on the on the course. I remember um, by reproducing, <laughs> it wasn't the only thing I wrote on the in the answer to the case study. Um, but it, what it was, and we always used to think that George was absolutely useless. I shouldn't say this, but <laughs> but actually he was very good. And Why? Um, well, because he was right. He was right. I mean, it, it, life is uh, a balance between broadly between those three things, and people can get two of them right uh, you know you can get let's say career maybe and family or career and society or family and society to the absence of uh, career but it's very difficult and there are very few people I've come across that have managed to to because they all compete for time mm-hmm. um, manage to balance all three you know my, fa- my, my father well, my father could do family and his career. Uh, he didn't do much, uh, you know. wasn't He wasn't a rich man. I'm always, always, I'm always described as having come from a wealthy uh, family in North London. I, mean, I was born in a place called Queensborough Court at Henley's Corner, which was sort of got a bomb on it in the the, the Second World War. I mean, unexploded bomb. Mm. Um, but it's still there at Henley's Corner. I mean, it's a fairly modest apartment block. My father was very hardworking, literally seven days a week, and came from nothing to what I would say in middle class. Um, but in the true sense of the word, not the way that it's tossed around. Right. Uh, and now, but I mean, you know, he was—he uh, did a very good job uh, from modest. But you know, it wasn't a wealthy background that I, that I came from. It was—I would say—comfortable. Uh, but my father devoted everything to family, my mother and myself, uh, and his career. He didn't do much on the social uh, side um, or you know, charitable side. Mm-hmm. And, and doing, you know, getting that balance right is, is a difficult thing to do. My thanks to Sir Martin Sorrell. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. And please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. And check out Fort Knox Live on Facebook, Twitter, and Periscope, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. There I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Next on the podcast, Katie Jacobs-Stanton is Chief Marketing Officer at Color, a genetics startup. Her experience and insight is wide. She's worked at Google, Yahoo, and for a president of the United States. Get her insights on women in tech and how she navigated D.C. and Silicon Valley. And go ahead and subscribe to Fort Knox now on your iPhone's podcast app or on Google Play. You don't want to miss that. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, or fortknox.com. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X dot com. I'd love to hear from you. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.